Nightcaps of the Living Dead. The Lost Boys of Summer. guys we are kicking off summer and representing pride with the lost boys uh, i really wanted to do this one for a while this is such a fun movie but it ain't no coincidence dr g is moving to said vampire haven in a few months and we gotta get yes, you ready I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you're moving to santa clara not santa carla but santa clara yes exactly when i saw the movie i was like wait a minute <laughs> Well, did they, they change Santa Cruz or Santa Cl Santa? Wait, what is it? Santa Clara? No, Santa Carla. <laughs> well, you know why but they did like, that, right? You know, for me, for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm moving there. Wait, why did they do that? Why did, because, well, because I don't know the story. Well, the whole thing is, um, I mean, they clearly made it off of, uh, they clearly based it off of Santa Cruz. But at the time, Santa Cruz was the murder capital of the world. And they make that a, a huge point in the script of like, all these people are going mm -hmm. missing. So Santa Cruz was like, yeah, you want to film at our boardwalk? That's all gravy. That's cool. But it's um, kind of bad for tourism that you're saying is the murder capital. Like, we know it's the murder capital of the world, but <laughs> we still want people to come here and live for a while. So um, they were just like, film, but ah. change the name. And the Santa Clara is like, we don't want that mess. And they're like, well, let's mess around a few consonants so we have santa carla so you're in between santa cruz and santa clara correct you're like kind of like exactly that? so it's so i was like wondering i was like okay they don't want that reputation mm -hmm. they don't want the name attached to murder capital of the world because they're using that reference in the script yeah so that's why they changed it that makes sense and then yeah. they were like well santa clara's like well don't bring this on us yeah we don't want any part of this <laughs> no problem no you film over there no we don't want that and um it's crazy because Santa Cruz, I mean, I've been there. Have you been? Have you been to Santa Cruz? Yes, I have been to Santa Cruz. I love it. It's really fun. It's a typical California beach town. It's so super cute. But back in the day, I mean, look, a lot of major cities and, you know, nowadays some beach cities are getting a little, a little violent. But 70s to 80s, Santa Cruz had not one, not two, but three serial killers running around at the same time. I mean, it was madness. Were you just thinking about your new life, about coming to Santa Clara? Yes, I was like, oh my God, I was like, location scouting for my new house. <laughs> well, also- I was like, do I want to be in the mountains, like like um, Diane Weiss's little compound? <laughs> Little bohemian in the in the woods compound, or do I want to be by the beach, by the boardwalk? I was like, oh, how do I feel about living in Santa Cruz and with these hot vampires? Well, I was I, like, I can deal with it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you also fun fact. Um, while they were location scouting for this movie, somebody was murdered outside of the cruise <gasps> hotel room. Like this was still a bad deal in the '80s. It is so much nicer now. I mean, as you know. You, you've been yes, there. Yes, it's very, very nice. Isn't Santa it? Cruz can now appear in a movie with its name. <laughs> Proudly. <laughs> and no one will run the other way because it was featured in Jordan Peele's Us. Right. 
very recently, and they did call it Santa Cruz in that movie. Yeah. They didn't call it Santa Carla. Yeah, they, they, they got the, the hiding queer. their identity. And they even say in us in the first few minutes, they uh, they give a shout out to Lost Boys. They go, oh, they're filming something over there by the carousel. And it's in the 80s. It's totally uh, this movie. So whenever you were uh, rewatching, were you just like packing your boxes and singing to yourself? Like, thou shall not break these glasses. <laughs> 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 yes, I was like dreaming of like, oh, because they move there at the beginning of the movie. I'm like, that's going to be me. This is your chapter. <laughs> it's really exciting. You're going to hang out with all the hot goths in California. <laughs> so what are you drinking today on this oh, summer so day? I, because I just came back from a trip from Spain. Humble so brag. Humble brag. I am having a cava called Ana de Cotorniu. Which is a Spanish cava from Barcelona. Oh. And it's a Blanc de Blanc, and the bottle is white. Oh, well, so block. initially I thought, or maybe I'll do this later. I have some sangria for later. Oh, So you're... it's like, ooh, I can go from the cava into the sangria with the theme you're for the in Spain movie. mode, baby. That's great. Yes. And fun fact California used to be part of Spain, and why the name is Santa Cruz. The Spaniards made that happen same thing with santa clara which is the oldest mission church look at us bringing these factoids fast and furious (laughs) at the beginning of this podcast so my cava sangria moment is more fitting than you think i am drinking an arnold palmer with whiskey in it oh i know just because i mean it just is a summary movie i wanted a summary drink and so i have a whiskey palmer okay let's jump into this really 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 fun movie i I love this movie. Amazing, right? It's, Amazing rewatch. <laughs> I had the best time rewatching this. And for the very few of you that have not seen this movie and are listening to this podcast, I mean, it's it, it's such a basic concept. I mean, Diane Weist and Jason Patrick and the two Corys fight off sexy teenage vampires by the beach, pretty much. But it's a very complex movie. It can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. This movie was directed by the fabulously gay and openly gay all his career, um, the late Joel Schumacher, who recently, I think he passed away in the past year or so. Yeah, it's very recent. Um, and Joel was a fashion designer before he became a filmmaker. Which blew my mind. I didn't know that. I'm like, really? And it's like, oh, yeah, he graduated from Parsons. I mean, yep. I mean, and he was hanging out with Halston. With, oh. He was he appeared uh, as a character in the is it Netflix series on Halston? Yeah, the Ewan McGregor one. Ewan McGregor. So he was played by Rory Culkin. Wait, um, that was that yes. was him. That was him. Yeah, I remember. Did you watch no, it? That's him. That's Joel. <laughs> I had no idea that character was supposed to be him. Wow. Yes, that's, Okay. Well, I learned another thing. Already. And in that, in that, in the show, they showed that he had a kind of like a drug problem that yeah. he overcame, and he he lived a very long life because I think he died. How old was he? I don't know. Like 80 oh or yeah, 90, he was you know? in yeah he was in he was in his eighties, I believe. You know, yeah. So he lived a long and prosperous and he, gay life, and apparently he slept with over ten thousand men or something. He was he boasted about. Oh, he knew the like, New York like, party. I slept life. with everyone. Yeah, he was just like, oh, <laughs> he's like, I did all the drugs, drank all the things, had all the sex. We are talking after fashion school. He did Saint Elmo's Fire. He did Batman Forever. He did my personal favorite, Falling Down, starring Michael Douglas, because uh, his That's last name true. is Foster in it. His character's last yeah. name is Foster. 
and he is done with everybody's shit and freaking out all in Los Angeles. And it's really great to see yourself represented on film. I feel like he did a couple of adaptations of thrillers. Um, oh, Phone Booth, 8mm, with her, with the great um, Nicolas Cage. Yes. Oh, he also directed episodes of House of Cards. So he was like working. He was working until the end. I mean, I just, I really love the range of his work. And and also whenever um, I pulled up interviews for this episode, he's just so laid back. When talking about this movie, he knows the cultural importance, but he seems genuinely surprised that it's the hit that it is. He's like, I just wanted to make, you know, the coolest vampire movie there was. And he did. And the gayest, but we'll get into that. Um, so the one that I was thinking about, he did do The Client, but the one, I think one of his best movies is A Time to Kill, which was also a oh, Grisham adaptation. Yeah, the Matthew McConaughey. With Sandra Bullock mm-hmm. and Samuel L. Um, also, he directed Dying Young, Flatliners, mm-hmm. In Excess Videos. <laughs> which we'll get to. I love In and the, and the Incredible Shrinking Woman, which was his feature film debut. I mean, um, so he's been around the block and not just in New York in the <laughs> making universe. He also directed Colin is discovered Colin Farrell. He directed Tigerland, which was um, the first the movie that my casting director did. And she was part of the team who found Colin Farrell. Oh, who, who was, was his first movie? Who was your casting director that you worked with? Um, Emily Schweber. Remember Emily yes, was the Emily. Tigerland. She always told that story of working with Joel Schumacher and finding Colin Farrell. Well, so, let's let's get to the casting director of this one, too, because if he's worked with Emily, I mean, oh. here's the thing. Casting directors, it's it's no secret in the industry that it's such a thankless job. And I do feel that it doesn't get the um, the the recognition that it deserves because it's majorly filled with women and gay men. And it's a really essential position to making sure that your film is good. And so for this movie, for Lost Boys, the casting director was the legendary, the godmother of casting, Marion Doherty. And for anybody that isn't familiar with her, she um, there's a great documentary on HBO called Casting By. Highly recommend it. She is responsible for re- just really jumpstarting the careers of like Al Pacino, James Dean, um, Glenn Close, uh, Robert De Niro. The, the lady had an eye. And this movie, not a lot of people realize these were virtual unknowns. I mean, even Kiefer, yes. with his daddy being who he is, he hadn't really done shit. So we have Alex Winter, Jason Patrick, the beginning of the two Corys, which was yes. its own. This is the movie where they became friends. Yeah. This is where they met. This is the beginning. And the two Corys were born. The two out Corys of this movie. took off. Which, do you remember those, uh, the, the Cory hotline back in the day? Which, yes, I was going to say, I went back to Team Beat and all those yes. like teen magazines. I love them. Like I watched Dream Little Dream. I, I licensed to drive. Like that was my jam. Yes. I loved the two Corys. And it's so sad. I mean, and some of this podcast is what this is. Like older people, like or, like this podcast is us watching and then realizing things as we age or seeing things in retrospect. I'm like, oh, that hits a little different. I mean, 
The two Corey's phone line hit different. Whenever I, I kind of went down memory lane yesterday, I went to YouTube to check out a commercial. And they're like, yeah, call me anytime. 1-900, yada, yada. I'm like, oh, God. It's, yes. <laughs> and, and we and know especially the, with all the, all the things that we know now that we didn't know back then. We didn't know then. <laughs> and we just see like Corey Feldman doing his Michael Jackson shtick. And then Corey Hames talking to the camera of like, yeah, you call this right now. And I'm going to give you my, my home line. And we're going to wrap. I'm just like, oh, my God, they were so innocent and wholesome. And then we know the sad, complicated fallout that happened after that. But um, anyways, it, it was a cultural moment. So we have an ensemble of very good-looking and talented people. This is 1987. This was released. And it's weird because we're having... A weird moment because I just watched the Top Gun sequel, and I think Top Gun was came out in 1986. So I've been in this like weird 80s mode and 80s, and for some reason the aesthetics of the beginning of this movie reminded me a little bit of um, what Top Gun. Because I, do you Top know? Was, do you know wait, the no, little Easter know. egg about this? I'm gonna crash no. your party because I was so jazzed to learn this. So I, I had that same feeling too. I'm like, is it just because Top Gun's being marketed down our throats right now? And everybody says it's so good and all this, or maybe I have like that Lestat energy in my head as I'm watching the beginning of these sexy vampires like walking around. No, so fun fact, um, because of all of these unknowns being cast, the studio started getting cold feet. They're like, there's not going to be a draw for people to see this. It's Diane Weist and, and a bunch of nobodies. And so they cut the budget by $2 million. And Joel oh. Joel's like, well, we have all these helicopter shots. We have all this stuff. They're like, eh, figure it out. So where he made the cutbacks um, were in some of the shots, the POV shots, when the vampires are soaring around the sky and floating mm-hmm. through the clouds. He used... B-roll footage from Top Gun. <gasps> right? Blue That's mind. why. So you are on this point. This is amazing. This is amazing. So I just, weirdly enough, I did like a reverse thing. I just went to see Tom Gun Maverick a week ago. Everybody and says then it's insanely we, good. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. You know, you and I were belting the Gaga song. <laughs> the soundtrack was made by Gaga, and it all builds to her song. It's amazing. Oh, cool. Oh, but we decided to... We didn't watch. We forgot to watch OG Top Gun first. And so we were like, oh, shit, let's let's watch the prequel. Because <laughs> oh, you can you can watch the new God. one without watching the original one. It kind of gives you all the information that you need. Right, but we were like, sure. we we're curious. We're like, you just oh, let's need to go see, see them playing it. volleyball. That's all you need to see in the first one. <laughs> Who cares? Oh, and there's a there's a scene like that in this one. Oh. They do. They do a really good job of of honoring of, it, of honoring it cool. and then doing new things. Cool. Um, so then I, so we watched the OG one here at home and I swear to God, some of the same shots are in it. I thought the same thing, especially those aerial shots through the clouds. That's that's supposed to be the POV of the vampires. They're just like, well, fuck, we don't have the money to do this. So, uh, guess what? They didn't use this B-roll for Top Gun. We're doing it. (laughs) And it it works. This is incredible. This is incredible. Well, you have a good eye. And also, like, they use the music, like, the what's the song? The the famous, which was made for this movie. Cry Little Sister. Cry Little Sister, Mm -hmm. yes. So they use the music with the aerial shots. And you're there. It works. Well, there's something that used to be called MTV editing, like where everything was like snap, 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 snap. Mm. But the truth of the matter, even that is a way slower. Movies have gotten faster as the years went by, especially into the 90s. So 
80s movies tend to be paced a little slower hmm. than what we think they were. Okay. But not this movie. <laughs> right. This movie was like a roller coaster, literally, off the coast of Santa Cruz. It was so fast-paced. They are setting the entire scene of Santa Cruz in the world as the credits are rolling. And eight, I put in my notes, eight minutes in, you are introduced to the vampire's world and the protagonist's world, like of the nuclear family. Like you have all that in eight minutes and also a kill three minutes in, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But I, I noticed like, oh my God, so much has happened. And I'm just, I feel dazzled. I feel like I'm at a, at a show. I feel like I'm watching musicians play. Like there's just so many distractions and so many things to absorb. And I, that goes to your MTV editing um, analogy. Which, which was popular. And I think a lot of movies were accused of being too MTV. Mm-hmm. But here's the genius of Joel Schumacher. It is, yes, to some degree, using techniques that we would see music videos dissolves and music and rhythms and stuff like that. But it's using that to the service of the story. It's very smart editing because it's not rent, it's not cut to music. It's mm-hmm. not um, you're not watching a music video, even though George Schumacher was also a music video director and very successfully so. And, and he did um, say, like, I want this to be the MTV generation movie. He was just like, this is the culture. Like, let's get there. And, and and he's doing that right mm-hmm. so the editing reflects that but at the same time you're getting you you're getting a lot of story mm-hmm. and for example he intersperses like you say exposition does it very quickly mm-hmm. which is great people get bored with exposition right but then when there's that scene and I'm getting a little bit ahead when there's that bridge scene mm-hmm. he takes his time with the suspense mm, that's true Do you know what I'm talking about that's we're gonna true. get there yeah little teaser um so he knows how to how to I'm going to be fast paced in these moments and be fun and quirky and comedic. But when there's suspense, I'm going to take my time. And I thought he did that. It worked really, really well. And I don't know. I'm just, I was just in awe. We are in the opening shots. Um, We have the vampires flowing overhead with the clouds and the helicopter shots that are the actual lost boys production footage where, you know, they're going over the pier and all that. Um, a security guy is oppressing the youth since like the first kill three minutes in and I honestly forgot about the opening scene about just you know the vampires floating and doing their thing I thought that the opening scene was sexy sax man doing his yes which isn't sexy sax man in your birthday video I was like, oh my God, that's the guy from Jennifer's it's video. Tim I forgot about Capello. <laughs> so guys, I have something very special to share with you. Um, during the pandemic, I had a big birthday and my lovely, lovely, lovely favorite people in the world um, came together and, and Melissa did this awesome producing of a birthday video um, where everybody just kind of gave me a shout out and they did like um, something personal, like a dance or a song or it was, it was just so nice. I felt so loved in this really dark pandemic. Like this is the middle of COVID and it just was really great. And then our friend, Dr. G here closed out the video with a shot for shot reenactment of Madonna's hung up with his family. Yes. It was <laughs> a glorious reenactment. Like it was wonderful. Um, so also Cameo was at the <laughs> the height of its, its time whenever, you, you know, you pay a celebrity to give you a shout out or whatever. Jack contacted Tim Capello 
sexy sax man from the Lost Boys. And can I tell you, I want to be friends with him. If I didn't love him before, I love him now. He was so jazzed. Yes, he did play the sax. He was wearing yes. a muscle tee. He <laughs> is still jacked. He is so nice. He is so nice. He was like, Jennifer, it's your birthday. And he just, it was like a three minute long message. It was amazing. And he, yeah, I was it, like, I recognized him. I was yeah, like, oh my God, this he just, is the sax guy. I've never he seemed like the most positive person ever. I'm like, this guy is awesome. And I later learned that he played in Tina Turner's band. I mean, this guy is, is legit. But anyways, he seems like a lovely, lovely person. And I love that his credit Instead of just, you know, oh, singer or sax guy that everybody refers uh, refers to him as, it's beach concert star. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> he is a star. He's great. Um, so yeah, Tim Capello. I love him. Everybody think of him fondly. He's awesome. We have that this sequence where they're attending the concert by the beach, mm-hmm. right? And then we meet um, Jamie Gertz looking like a combination of Emma Watson and Shakira in this movie. Um, <laughs> well, it was that fluffy 80s hair. I really wanted that yeah, 80s her, hair. Yeah, but she had like Shakira, she will buy Yeah, like, she did. Ooh. Very right? boho, boho, yeah, totally. I was like, oh, I like it. And Shakira's been doing a lot of 80s things recently. So sure. she shows up in this scene and this is where we're introduced. And then Jason Patrick, they look at each They're other. They're making their eyes. With smizing eyes. Teenage lust and in the beachy air. Exactly. And this is what's, I think she's what sets up Jason Patrick's kind of adventure mm-hmm. into meeting the vampires, right? Doesn't he just follow her? Yeah. I at mean, this time. Yeah. He kind of creeps on her a little bit in a consensual way. <laughs> but he, yes. he creeps on her and then she's like, oh, with Kiefer. And Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland is prime oh, Billy like Idol. The- oh my God. I mean, it, it's. Those lips. He's like, oh. it, this is what made him. Yes, he's, he's was, snarling yeah. and he has like the, the shark tooth earring, the blonde mullet. I'm like, I, I am hot for Billy Idol to this day. I love Billy Idol. I'm like, take my money, take my money. He's on a bike now. Oh my God, just take my money. So great. All these hot. And then um, Alex Winter of Bill and Ted fame. Yes. Wearing Bill his, from Bill and Ted. Wearing crop tops and showing those abs. And he had extensions for a mullet. Um, and I read interviews. And now he's a, a very successful um, working director and very respected. But at the time, he's like, yeah, I just came out of film school. And I went to this audition. And they're just like, can you put in some extensions and give yourself a 17-inch mullet? And he's like, Okay. Um, they're making the eyes and then we see the introduction of Kiefer and Jason's like, okay, she's, she's with that dude. All right. And then we see the setup of the world of the, um, deconstructed nuclear family. Um, Mm -hmm. like Diane moves in with, I, I know this character actor is named Bernard. What's his last name? Oh, I don't remember. Anyways, the, the dad. Yeah, the dad. I, I, I just call him Bad Grandpa because I had different feelings towards Bad Grandpa <laughs> this rewatch. I'm like, oh, he's so funny the first time around. He's the comedic relief. And now as an older person, I'm like, mm, okay, Bad Grandpa. <laughs> um, 
they show that Diane has chosen to divorce. It's not like, oh, I, my husband and I are getting a divorce. It's like, I left him and I took the kids. It shows a very forceful 80s mom, like power woman move. But her voice is so soft-spoken that you would think it's the opposite. Like it was a really interesting casting and directing choice for that. Again, going to Marianne and Joel. Um, I just love the casting of Diane for this. So she goes in and shows that she's moving in with, with Pops and he can't really be bothered. And they have all this talk about there's no TV and without TV, there's no MTV. Just really doubling down on, on the moment, what's happening. Youth culture of the 80s. And this is all over every movie. Right. They paint the picture of moving to Santa Carla mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as moving kind of to the woods or something like there's nothing there's no tv like that especially the bad grandpa's house like there's did, no access to things did they ever, a little um, bit like did they establish where they were moving from because in my head i'm like are they moving from la like i i didn't know where they were moving from it's just like oh they're just in this new world i don't think i don't think they ever mention it oh, i think so interesting she's just moving in with dad huh so yeah. they're rolling into town and it's it's when they show um back grandpa's house mm-hmm. there's no technology it's it's almost like moving to the countryside even though this is a beach town that's very hopping with a lot and then they show there's there's a contrast between where the back grandpa lives mm-hmm. the boho house mm-hmm. and then the town where there's definitely a lot of like punk kids and you know, goth kids and all this stuff, a lot of youth, mm-hmm. right? So it's clearly not a boring town right. for, a, for a teenager to arrive in. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. It's like, oh, they're moving to the coast, but it's like a different kind of It's a different vibe. Coast. Yeah. It's a different vibe. I thought the house was a character and I was like, oh, this could be my house when I moved there. Um, I was like scouting. When I get attacked by boys with high cheekbones and leather. Exactly. And come into my windows. <laughs> um, and so they introduced that. And then we have um, little um, Corey Haim. Corey Haim and loud is- shirt number one. I, I counted yes, it down. I loud shirt number say- one. <laughs> This is where Joel, you know, got his fashion designer <laughs> 80s and he took to Corey Hayne was going to wear all his new designs. Oh, I had no idea if he had anything to do with this. I, epic. But <laughs> epic, epic wardrobe for Corey Hayne in every scene. Amazing. Um, also, I think, I mean, maybe I'm being... I'm projecting, but I feel like Corey Haim's character is gay. This movie. Of course you're projecting. Of course but you are. I'm not because Joel Schumacher directed the movie. So, hey. Uh, okay. I mean, he ha- didn't he have a shirt said Born to Shop at one point? And then he had this other. Did he really? Okay. He was gay. He's gay. I decided that he's gay. All right. They never give him a love interest, right? They never give him a. Because he's like a, he's a prepubescent boy. Who knows? Yeah, but I feel like he's a gay to be, a gay to be. You know, I'm going to say he was extremely intelligent. So, yeah, like, I think your theory could track. I think it could. He's very intelligent, very fashionable. He he, he's fun into in that comic bathroom. books and, you know. Okay. He's into comic books. Okay. And I think, yeah, I think he was like, oh, this is me when I was a teenager. Like, Joel was like, this is a picture of a fun gay. I could see that. In, a, in his teenage years right. with a strong fashion sense. So I'm going to leave it at that. 
Um, so then it's when they when the bike stuff happens, right? So yes. then Jason Patrick leaves, and they go on this like Lost Highway Lynchian bike ride through the fog. Oh yeah, right? yeah, the fog, which I was amazing. That I was, was like, really cool. Um, where they almost like jump over the cliff, like they stop right at the edge. Mm-hmm. And then Kiefer's like, how far do you want to go? And da, da, da. And they're like hinting that there's something dangerous happening. Kiefer pushing those boundaries. Come on, Kiefer. And it's a little bit James Dean, um, Rebel Without a Cause, right? Okay, so there. I thought that also in conjunction with going back to Bad Grandpa, they kept saying, um, they kept referencing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Dennis mm-hmm. Hopper is in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which was of that year. It, it was in yes. 86 or 87. It was the, around the same time frame. I think it's the same year, yeah. Yeah, and then we have the Rebel Without a Cause, which Hopper was in. I'm like, okay, somebody's got a Hopper Hopper nod going on. Ah. So then, and it has, you know, it's a teenage story, right? So it's a te- story of a teenage rebellion. Right. You know, circumstance. So a lot of things match. Different circumstances, right? 80s, single mom scenario, mm-hmm. supposed to like nuclear family, 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they go into the, the lair of the vampires. So this right? is such a cool production design moment. This is really cool. Because I think in the script, oh, which I totally failed to um, bring up when we were introing this, the script, Joel has always said that it was Goonies meets vampires. Like it was like supposed to be cutesy and G rated and like a romp, you know? And he's just like, no, I want this to be sexy and fun. <laughs> and, and I guess um, Warner brothers, they had a bat cave. They had all these, you know, sets. And they're like, well, we got to use these fucking things. And you know, if you want to decrease your budget, like use this. And he's like, well, I don't, I don't want a run-of-the-mill cave because, you know, he's Joel Schumacher. He's just like, no, give me something better. And then he later got a cave with the Batman movies. Like, I'm sure he would have been so sick of caves at that point. But um, they designed it to be a hotel, a Victorian hotel, that fell through the um, San Andreas fault line in, yes. in the early yes. 1900s. I thought that was such a cool – I did not get that as a child. I'm like, oh, they're in this cool goth room. You know, but like, no, they, it was an old hotel that was supposed to have fallen during the earthquake. Caved in, yeah. I, I saw that too. And I was like, Ed, that's awesome. And then you have Jim Morrison's poster yeah. laying in the well, background, and, and, which I think they added. Well, apparently, Joel, he wanted to um, incorporate a lot of Doors songs. And as you and I know, music is expensive if it's like mainstream. So, once again, battling with um, with Wonder Brothers, or I'll just say once again, battling with the studio. In addition to having the two million cut, and he had to do those Top Gun B-roll shots, uh, he had to get really creative with the music and the soundtrack. Oh, to and this. that's why. Uh, and that's why he so directed. That's why they had to create the original, the the Cry Little Sister. Yes, which is amazing. He loved Cry Little Sister, and he talked to his composer about it because his, his composer had a different idea, and he's like, "No, I love Cry Little Sister. I need this." And listening to it as an older person, I just remember the. Um, the, the children singing like thou shall not like I just remember the chorus and those beats it's so haunting and it creates a mood I totally omitted the the vocals from my mind and listening to it as an older person it sounds like Marilyn Manson before yes. Marilyn Manson was even a thing it sounds is is a very specific register so again another little lost highway moment yes. that came to me 
um, while watching this. But uh, apparently, in order to have everything under budget and get the music that he wanted, he started reaching out to all these bands. And he said, especially in excess, and mm-hmm. and he said, um, hey, guys, I will direct videos for free if you guys want to contribute to this. And he ended up doing the Devil Inside music video because in excess lended so heavily to the soundtrack. And, um, oh wow! Yeah, and then you have Roger Daltrey. That's awesome. I'm like Roger Daltrey could have. I mean, he's singing an Elton John song. He's singing "Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me," which is super cheeky, and I love. But I'm like, that had to be expensive. But apparently, there was no money in the budget. So I'm curious how he got that. He one. got creative. Yeah, that so. is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, and it's such an it becomes such an iconic soundtrack as a result but oh, i think there was so a lot great. of creative well limitation awesome. breeds creativity I, he is exactly. an indie person through and through at his his core that's why late great joel schumacher so awesome i'm gonna raise one to him with my whiskey yes. tea with my whiskey yes. palmer with your kava. And my kava um so after they meet in the lair in the sunken hotel victorian hotel mm-hmm. this is when the um they're eating their Chinese food, and he starts seeing the, the little maggots. That is and the little snakes. When you saw that as a youngin, did that not stay with you every time you saw rice? Yes. I think that's I why a... I don't like rice to this day. You know how I pick the su- the rice around my sushi? Do you think maybe yes. it's a <laughs> post traumatic scene? <laughs> well, and then so oh, I wanted oh, to yes. I wanted to ask you this one thing because you are our resident Stephen King. Um, What's a better word for smarty pants? Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're our resident Stephen King know-it-all. You know everything Stephen King. So I I went online to research this. Who had the Chinese delusion first? Lost Boys with the maggots. Or It. Or It with the eyeball, the Chinese restaurant. Well, here's the crazy part. The novel came out that year, so. Well. Here's the oh, you, thing. you you found. Well, oh. no, no, no. I want to know if you know more about this because I'm still I'm not resolved. I so the film came out in '87. The book was published in '86. But then yes. I'm like, well, when was it filmed? It was filmed in June '86, and then it the book came out September '86. So I'm still not There's feeling no good way. about this. I don't know. <laughs> I so what what do you know about this? I'm I'm like spinning. No, I was going to say they're contemporaneous. So like um No, yeah, I, there's no way they could have because the screenplay was already written. Right. Even if they read an excerpt. But what if it was a pickup shot? Maybe it was a pickup shot. I just <sighs> I think because the book came out almost at the same time the movie was being made. There's no way that one could have influenced the other unless like Joel Schumacher and Stephen King were buddies, which could be. Um, but it's one of those things where great mind things are like people are thinking similar ideas around the same time. I can see that. Um, but I, I thought the same thing, too. I was like, oh, this is like the it Chinese restaurant yeah. scene. So crazy. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Um, a lot of suspicious Chinese food at the time. <laughs> Don't trust the rice. Um, so then this is uh, the scene in which Shakira. Then, oh, then. Oh, you're, um, car, you're calling Star Shakira. Star Shakira. Star Shakira. Star Kira. Um, Star Kira. She 
is trying to kind of like warn him, but she brought him there. There's like this weird ambiguity about her role in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the big bottle of wine shows up mm-hmm. that looks like the bottle from Segura's view that's Cava. <laughs> Very ornate. And Jason Patrick decides to drink the cup of life or the bottle of life in this case. Mm-hmm. And this is revealed later to be um, Kifu Sutherland's blood, right? And then so he's kind of starting his transition right. into vampire mm-hmm. um, un- unknowingly, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, yeah. So after the, the blood is alive bottle, bottle is alive ceremony of blood, they go off to the bridge. And this is one of the best sequences in the movie. Oh, it was so fun. So cool. Where they all start kind of throwing themselves into a hole in the bridge. And you're like, where are they going? What's happening? And this is and what you were revealed. talking about with the editing of everything so fast. And you mentioned that. And this builds. scene is suspenseful. Mm-hmm. So it has a, like an arc. So they jump into the hole first. And then it is revealed that they're hanging like bats. Yeah. Underneath the bridge. And then. So it gets more, it's literally a suspenseful scene because they're suspended from the bridge. It's very Hitchcockian. And then you get that whole thing where the Brit, where the train is going over and then they all start kind of dropping. And then Kiefer's making this very the, intense eye contact where we get to like the homosexual vibes of the. Yeah, he's like, mm, he's like, I fucking you, him. He's like, come on. Do you really, do you want Starkira or do you want me? Um, so and then they all kind of start dropping one by one bill from bill and ted and and so you're like oh is jason patrick gonna do it is he gonna hold on for dear life and the thing is shaking mm-hmm. and so it's a fun scene and you're really wondering where they're you hear them but you're really wondering where they're falling too mm-hmm. so there's a, a lot of mystery and there's a fog underneath the, it's a beautiful shot yeah he finally drops you kind of see him floating through the fog in space. And eventually he just basically falls into his own bed. So they mix the dreamlike into this sequence. And he wakes up with his sunglasses and he's like sleeping in because he's already kind of vampiric. Which let's and be fair. That's like all of us in our 20s on the weekend in WeHo. Exactly. Joel Schumacher knew very knew well what it was like. So he's had a night. He's sleeping in with the sunglasses, a night and a night with Kiefer. And he's like, you know, is it really about Starkira? Is it about Kiefer that mm. he's attracted to? And he becomes a, a, a vampire in transition. And so in the original Stoker's Dracula, I think the final, so you get bitten. And then when you drink the blood, of the vampires when you complete the cycle. Mm-hmm. Here they change things up. He's never bitten by anyone. Mm-hmm. He just drinks the blood of of Kiefer. Mm-hmm. And so to complete the cycle, he has to kill someone, right? He right. has to feed. Right. So the, he's never bitten. And I thought this was interesting. So to what you were saying about um, the rules kind of being slowly unveiled, I, I think that with Bram Stoker's Dracula and Nosferatu, we have this kind of unwritten understanding of the rules of the vampire world you know and here i really like that it's slowly given to you like little nuggets it's like narrated as it goes of oh does garlic work does holy water work and the people that are narrating this and controlling this journey are the frog brothers it's Corey feldman and the other guy which 
how sad is that? The two Corys take off, but the guy who actually plays Corey's brother, who the fuck is he? We don't know who he is. He just. <laughs> I was looking at him. I was like, where the fuck does this guy go? <laughs> I mean, like, man, to be like, well, they made it and I'm nobody. Okay. But um, I love that it's a commentary on fandom because these two boys love comic books and they are certified vampirologists just based on reading comic books. So they're like, we're going to try this, we're going to try that, blah, blah, blah. They have no fear. They're so confident in their knowledge. And also for Diane Weist, who's, you know, job searching along the boardwalk, she goes to a video store. And at first I thought like, oh my God, this is so weird. Who the fuck is going to put an electronics store by the ocean? What This is so strange to me. And then as an older person, I realized like, oh, it's a commentary on the culture. Like this is where we get our knowledge, and and this is also for social purposes. Um, I like that they're slowly giving you nuggets as we go, kind of like how Kevin Williamson and Scream, which I'm not opening that door because I don't want you to talk about all of the kajillion Scream movies on this podcast <laughs> and this episode. But it is a commentary, a meta-ness of like, oh, well, typically in horror, this is what happens. Also, I really appreciated the seduction of this. It's a more teenage way of seducing. Like, hey, let's go to this cave and, or let's go to this hotel and party and get drunk. And you, you like my girl or you like me. Like, it's, it's more contemporary as opposed to yeah. you know, I'm floating through your bedroom and you're going to have like an orgy with three people, you know, it's... It's like, okay, they're making a little bit more cash, a little bit, little bit more tender friendly, I guess. He, of course, the next morning starts realizing things have changed in his world. I remember, I don't know if this is in the scene, but I have this note, and maybe you have a note before this, where um, Corey Haim can't go to sleep, and there's a closet monster that Diane Weiss <gasps> references. Oh, okay, yep. There he is. Exactly. Proof there he point. is. All right. <laughs> Sealed. Delivered. Signed. The character is gay. Then he has his fabulous bathrobe when he takes his fabulous bath. Oh, his and he's 80s and bath singing. sequence. Yes, that's super cute. <laughs> he's so wholesome in it. So, okay, we get to Jason Patrick having coked out eyes. He goes to the bathroom. The wolf dog um, attacks him. Because he's protecting Corey Haim. Another rule of this vampire universe, he sees Jason Patrick in the mirror. And it's that 80s Back to the Future effect where he's like slowly fading. He's there, but he's not. Yes. (laughs) And then. So he's like a half vampire, half reflection. (laughs) Which I love that that's a thing. Like they they just made this up. Like he's he's half vampire. Um, and, And then Corey has the best line. And I, I quote it to this day. I'm just like, you're a creature of the night, Michael. A goddamn vampire. <laughs> like, <laughs> guys, if you want to play a drinking game while rewatching this movie, fun fact, they say the name Michael 118 times. Yeah. You're welcome. Don't <laughs> die. That's it. Another movie who did this is Poltergeist 3, which I think also came out in 1986. Oh, my God. Where they say the name Caroline, I think a hundred and something times, and wow. you can play a, an equally dangerous drinking game. Oh. Caroline, Caroline, here's oh. Michael. No, sorry, Poltergeist Three is eighty-eight. Never mind. Okay. A few years later, Poltergeist Two came out in eighty-six. A lot of Carolines too. Well, yeah. it's interesting. I thought about Poltergeist while watching Diane Weiss because she's like Joe Beth Williams if she got rid of useless Craig T. Nelson. Her character, right? Yes. Yes. Corey is more pissed off and bothered that Michael is a vampire as opposed 
<laughs> to being scared. He's just like annoyed, which I love. It's like, oh, my own goddamn brother, a blood-sucking vampire, goes up to the <laughs> stairs, locks himself in. He's just annoyed. And then... um. And then I think that that's when he calls Corey Feldman for advice on what to do. Yeah. And then this is, I think when they first is like, Oh, put a stick through his heart or do these things. Like I'm not going to kill my own brother. That's not going to happen. Like, that's a little we need another dramatic. solution. Yeah. Let's not be extra. So then they come up with a solution that they have to, is this when they introduce the concept that they have to kill the head vampire for all the sub vampires to be not vampires anymore. Oh, right. Is that the moment? This is all comes from the comic books that they're reading. Yeah, th that's just their education. <laughs> so now the movie switches from, okay, we got to help the bro get rid of his disease or his transformation. Mm -hmm. And so they have to figure out, they don't know who the head vampire is, right? Right. right. And so us as audience members assume that it's Kiefer. Yeah. But then there's a twist to that later on. Mm-hmm. Um, because then I started thinking that the movie, in in its comedic tone, was became a kind of allegory about AIDS, about trying to figure out the AIDS problem. Mm -hmm. And I started getting vibes about like, oh, this is reflecting on because I mean, you know Joel probably was going through this at this time. Well, yeah, in a fun way, is addressing the problem the, the, of AIDS. The most fun way mm -hmm. one can go about AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> I I saw a few interviews with him where that's where he said like, hey, if you want to be entertained, be entertained. If not, if you think it's something bigger, yeah, it could be the AIDS thing because um, even um, you know Kiefer later says like, oh, my blood is coursing through your veins. It's kind of an allusion to that. What Joel Schumacher has said in interviews about um, being open to people's interpretations about this. Um, as opposed to it being straightly about AIDS and transfusion and like, oh, we have cooties and things like that. He, he did have a lot of trauma with um, his friends and lovers, you know, contracting AIDS. And he said he had to go to the CDC to get a test and it would take three weeks for the results to come. Can you imagine waiting three weeks for an AIDS test? Like I would, oh my God, the anxiety. So he... Um, he was more about, he saw more of a strength and connection with gay people forming their own families because people just didn't understand the lifestyle. This is where the fun element of this movie comes from because it's depiction of the vampires, even though they're trying to, to figure out the problem of what's causing Jason Patrick to disappear, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Right in front of Corey Haim's eyes. When they reveal the the you know, the vampires are sexy and alluring and they're not necessarily bad other than mm -hmm. the fact that they have to feed. Right. Which again, is that kind of AIDS metaphor, which would be like having sex. Right. Um, which brings me to the point, to the sex scene between Jason Patrick and Sarkira. <laughs> the very 80s dissolves um, sex scene that was actually not that sexy, in my opinion. <laughs> Maybe on purpose, the hetero scene, the, the gratuitous hetero scene that Joel had to like, put in the movie. Well, well as, as a contractually hetero, bound I did not find so. it that sexy either. I was just like, oh. Well, it wasn't, right? It, it, I think it was on purpose. It felt like a meatloaf video, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, it, felt it was just very cheesy. funny. Yeah. <laughs> felt a little strange. Um, yeah. I, and I want to say for, for the gay storyline, for the sexy gay vampires or just to the outsiders, I want to point out 
that it's never being construed as that these are misfits as in society has alienated them. What I really like about this movie and this rewatch as an older person is that the gay symbolism for these boys, they are out and about. They are proud. They are drawing attention to themselves. They are what they need to be seen at the boardwalk. Like, oh, this oiled up guy is doing his concert and everybody's having fun. No, you need to look at us. Even though the movie is depicting, you know, vampirism as something bad, which as all vampire movies do, this one has a little twist to it. Yeah. In, a, in that regard, it has a little twist to it because it's a lifestyle that you want. Yeah, it's it's reckless, right? it's alluring, it's, it seems fun. It's liberating, and, Wait, and I think... Wasn't juxtap- the tagline? The tagline was something like, what, like... Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty great. <laughs> that's amazing. And also, the title of the movie is a reference to Peter Pan. Of course, yeah. The Lost Boys who don't grow, grow up. Yeah. And maybe this is part of what the metaphor he's, what you were talking about in terms of kind of depicting gay formed families, which is something that I've experienced myself too, where you kind of find your gays and you mm-hmm. um, kind find of that community. find that community find the community and the, and the sense of family that you never got from your own family mm-hmm. because they can see who you really are. And so in that way, it's, it's a way to be young and free. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, what I was going to say with the Diane Wee storyline her whole single mom empowerment storyline, she's kind of having her youthful moment. She works at a video store. She's dating. She's kind of young again. And I feel like Diane Weiss looks very young and youthful in this right. movie. Yeah. Um, so in a way, her storyline of her kind of fending for herself. Yeah, she moved back in with dad. But at the same time, she's not depicted as like, oh, I'm just going back home to where I grew up or whatever. Mm-hmm. The cliche version of her story is like, oh, you've lost you've, your marriage is a failure. You're you're starting. But no, the way they depict it is like, oh, it's fun. Now you get to be young again and yeah. explore again and find a job and get in, and go on a date and do your thing. And she's very kind of spunky. and Oh, and she's hitting on the boss, which we will learn is the head vampire. But he's, exactly. he's the boss of the video store. And look at her. She's just like, I'm going to chat you up. And I thought as an older person, like as a younger person, I'm like, oh, she wants to provide for her family, find this father figure. Like, that's what I took it as as a child. As an older person, I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah. she's just trying to snag this man. She's dating after she's living for love. Like, she's just doing her thing and also i want to point out how this man is dressed is because i'm doing a better call saul marathon <laughs> oh my god isn't it amazing i i can't watch tv after this like it's ruined <laughs> everything for me it's epic it's just there it's phenomenal there's not a bad episode okay so, yes so, like, okay I'm so glad that you're finally watching <laughs> oh it so my, we can talk about it it's everything i wanted because i wanted to binge it when i had some time i'm like i will shut myself in for two days and just watch season after season it's so good um so saul this is not a major spoiler alert for anybody but it's a detail about his dress he watches episodes of matlock Mm-hmm. And he does that white linen Andy Griffith suit to make people feel more at ease, more traditional people at ease. And I also took this to To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch in the South. It's just kind of this, you see this white linen suit and a lawyer, and you just think justice. So I noticed for this, 
The big bad, aka Max, head vampire, he's dressed like this. And I feel like it is to nod to conservatism. I think, I mean, this is nodding to how she was a hippie in the past. Like even Jason Patrick, her son, tells Star, just like, oh, Star, your parents were hippies too, huh? It's acknowledging that poltergeist, you know, that generation was free and clear and now we're all consumers. And now she's trying to have like a free moment and be boho. And she's attracted to this guy that reflects Jerry Falwell, you know? Like he looks like an evangelist. But yet owner of a video store. Exactly. So and I think I think he's purposely presented as a kind of enigmatic figure because part of the in that one scene, the dinner scene where mm-hmm. the boys, Corey Feldman, is Frog Bro and Haim are trying to figure out if this guy is a vampire mm-hmm. and they, you know, try to feed him um holy water, oh, they do garlic, all these different yeah. things. And the garlic and, and the crushed, you know, sort of crushed parmesan is crushed garlic. And he, none of it, none of it works, and he just kind of leaves. It's almost like, oh, this guy's not cool enough to be a vampire. He's right. kind of a Jerry Falwell, yeah. And so like it doesn't pill. work, <laughs> but it also protects the twist, right? In a right. way, it's the facade. It protects the twist. Also, you don't know why is it that Diane is kind of attracted to him to the stoic like, person that seems really repressed. I heard rumors that they're rebooting this, which hard pass in my opinion. But watching this. Oh, because of all the uh, the eighties nostalgia. Yeah, craze it's, it's just it's a time capsule. Come on, like this is you can't recreate mm. lightning in a bottle. It's so good. well now because of Top Gun, they're gonna try to do oh. with this with every oh single eighties movies God. ever made. They better leave Labyrinth <laughs> alone. Leave Labyrinth alone. You can't. Oh, it's happening. No. I'm sure it's happening. But no, um, I, I was gonna say if this were recast, which I don't want it to be, but just spitballing, because I mean, since we put Gwyneth Paltrow in a lot of movies to just have her killed, I don't know. Um, I feel that Max recast as Clancy Brown. See it? Oh, Come okay. on, Clancy I see Brown. It. I see it. And then also, you know that Harry Styles has to be a vampire. Well, is he Jason Patrick or is he Kiefer Sutherland? Oh, he's like he's Alex Winter. And he can, he can like eat a watermelon with his fangs. <laughs> Come on. So so who's Kiefer? Who's the bad boy? Who's the bad of boy? Today? Of the, uh, I don't Kiefer? want to say Chalamet. I'm so over him. Um, who's the bad boy? Oh, they could have the the, the Elvis guy. He could be one of the vampires. <gasps> Excellent. He He's having a moment now. Excellent. He's having a moment. Austin yes. Butler. Okay, so then we have the the housewives dinner from hell where Diane Weist has the big bad at the table and you know the the boys accost him and try to accuse him of being the head vampire they throw out the tricks of like the garlic and holy water nothing really seems to stick and he storms off and so the Corys are cock blocking diane at this point <laughs> yes the next scene there's this beach bonfire and there's all these like surfer bros blaring walk yes. this way and so we're thinking that mike's gonna get groomed to kill these you know Maybe this is another Top Gun moment. All these shirtless yes, young boys this is running around. Yes, the beach moment. <laughs> and um, and also, I uh, I read for Joel Schumacher this particular scene, the first screening. People just wanted to dance and party with these dudes on the beach, and people were like ripping the stuffing out of cushions. Like people were going wild at this screening. And so the execs were thrilled. They're just like, oh, people are losing their ship. This is, you know, going to be a teen movie. And Joel's like, oh, okay, all right. Like, he had no idea this would be the response. So um, 
Anyways, this is also the scene where we see a full-on prosthetic reveal. Like the make me a vampire. Oh, when they're in the trees. Yes. Yes. We are seeing the teeth. We are seeing the contacts that are... So obviously, Buffy the Vampire Slayer like took yep. so many liberties with this. We have Buffy the Vampire Slayer that came out in the 90s, the movie version, and then we also have Joss Whedon's. Joss Whedon's clearly just the influence of this movie. I, I did not even think about this. From the, the prosthetics to Spike, the antagonist in Buffy, has you know the Billy Idol blonde hair, <laughs> Kiefer style. Um, and they kind of make up their own rules in the universe. The big bad is like Max, a very stoic buzzkill. But um, more, more so than anything, it's the, the scrunched forehead and the fangs and the contacts. Now, I'm sure that all the actors on the WB, CW, Buffy, I'm sure that they were treated a little bit kinder by wardrobe. But Kiefer has said that um, a lot of his emotion, like it looks like he's really emoting behind the makeup. And he said that was not a technique. He said he was actually in physical pain because back in the day, those contact lenses were like golf balls. The, they were so thick. And there's a scene at the end where oh, he cries shit. and it's from pain because they've been in his <gasps> eyes for so he's long. Crying. He's crying. I saw that crying. and I was... <laughs> And they're just like, oh, you used it. He's just like, no, I just wanted them the fuck out of my eye sockets. It was so painful. Um, <laughs> so, oh, and then so they're all killing, you know, the cuties at the campfire. And Michael in this scene is so extra. He's so extra. He's screaming, no. It's a really overdramatic moment. <laughs> like, calm down, Jason Patrick. I've been noting Corey's shirts throughout the entire movie. And I'm like, he's wearing a red shirt here. It's not loud. The only difference (laughs) in wardrobe (laughs) in the movie. Um, So Star and Michael have a lover's quarrel. And Corey Haim and his effortless comedic timing. He's just so matter of fact. He's like, what? You drink blood? Who's David? What? Like, he's just, (laughs) he's hilarious in this scene. Um, and that's when it's revealed. Star's like, yeah, you were kind of bait. Kiefer wanted me to kill you, but I love you. So that happened. Oh, this and is when Shakira reveals her thighs. The Frog Brothers decide to take matters into their own hands. Like, they want to help out their bro, Corey. So they take Bad Grandpa's car, which I want to have a moment with Bad Grandpa. Well, yes, yes. He's He seems very la-di-da. And as a child, I thought, oh, he's that... That father figure that's kind of there, but not for Diane. Like, you see probably why Diane is divorcing an asshole. It seems like her dad was never very present. I didn't get that as a child. As an older person, I'm like, hmm, hmm, okay. You're kind of half in, half out, but you're being disguised as the comedic relief. And he's like, he's into taxidermy, which I know it's a Mm -hmm. psycho reference, but what a weird hobby to have and to be so lackadaisical about everything. I mean, I feel like to be into taxidermy, you have to be very detailed and kind of creepy. But he just seems like he wants to, you know, sit margaritas at the beach and be like a Jimmy Buffett fan. It seems very strange. It doesn't line up. Also, with in terms of references to the movies, there's a lot of references to Salem's Lot. Oh. It's all the window stuff. When the oh. vampires come to the window. And there's that moment where, like, Jason Patrick is going to be, like, taken away and he's trying to pull him in through the window. I did right in that moment. I'm like, he's having his Lionel Richie moment. He is on the <laughs> ceiling. I don't know why I just turned into Jonathan Van Ness, but like, that's how I felt. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so the Frog Brothers show up. They throw Michael into Bad Grandpa's beautiful classic car. And they mm-hmm. go down to the Victorian Hotel. And in my notes, I can tell I'm getting drunker and drunker. I start calling it the Alexandria DTLA Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> so they go there. Um, there's another reveal of the rules. Um, we see that all the the vampires... This is when they go during the day and they're going exactly. to go try to get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. They're all there hanging upside down. They're slumbering. And and that's when we see, like, oh, is daylight going to kill them? Or did they just come out at night to party just because that's when the action is happening? So um, they're sleeping upside down. And they're not elegant like Gary Oldman and Bram Stoker. They're just, you know, chill. Their mullets are are hanging down. Gravity is <laughs> helping these 80s haircuts the the aquanet is freezing those looks this is when they when they kill bill they kill bill, bill. And Ted, they right? kill bill yeah and it was a good death like he the the frog brothers and cory go in there and they on their vampire comic book education they put a stake through alex winter and it's sad and he dies and he wakes up all the others you have to have like a lot of teenage angst and aggression to really get a stake through another person. I know, and he he did it like it was like it was you know butter. Yeah, and I, I like baked it, a potato it a the push. other day, and I, I had trouble getting the fork just to pierce the the roughness of the skin. I'm like, I couldn't do a vampire. I can't do a potato. Okay, back to bad grandpa. I, I really, this is my rewatch notes. Like it has nothing to do with the pandemic and our society and whatever. They'll come back freaked out with the gas guzzler, beautiful car. And then, you know, grandpa lectures them on like, you better fill it up with gas. <sighs> like you're, you're not even checked in with your daughter and your kids and you're yelling at them about gas. And and doesn't he have like a date at some yeah, point? He's, that he's we never... like a pussy he's hound. Like... He's, he's going off trying to get this old widow or something. I just, ugh, I can't with him. Um, I, I did. This is how pissed off I was in my drunken super G. I wrote down. It was rude because in 2022 in California, gas is six seventy five. <laughs> when this movie was made, it was a dollar sixty four. Fuck your gas. Oh my god, uh, that's amazing. Okay, Corey. Corey Haim is back in loud shirt number six. And it's covered by oh. a sweet-ass windbreaker, so we don't get to see the pattern. Corey and Corey load up on the holy water, which confused me, because I thought they had tried that at dinner, and it didn't work. Well, for, for because they now think that um, the husband, Max is not a vampire. So they're loading up in holy water because they think Kiefer is the head vampire now, after the encounter of the cave. Right, but... Because they, they really didn't know. They were they were very in the dark about like who's the head vampire. They don't know any of. They just all to them it was all the same. They don't have an RM film where we see like Kiefer being like head but, but, Okay, but <clears throat> wouldn't the holy water damage a vampire? And they tried it at the dinner. Yes, which I don't the know. I, 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 there's a, a logical issue there. Once again, because they're I all vampires <laughs> and they don't exist. So, but <laughs> but I don't. I never. Did we ever get an explanation as to why it didn't affect Max? No, we don't. It's don't just like so. a logical problem. Like a, I mean, we'll give it, it a pass. It's fine. But, <laughs> but okay, I'm glad that you that you were there too. Because I was like, did I miss? Something? Yeah, I was like, I don't know if they ever explained the fact how he could not be affected by, hmm. since the others were right, right? Yeah, the garlic and the thing. Yeah, 
Because don't they kill? Well, in the climax, yeah. they kill some of the vampires well, they, with they the garlic fill, in the water. They fill a tub that. with holy water and put the garlic on the top because the garlic is a ruse. And they put down like the heavy metal hairband guy. His name is Brooks something in real life. They throw him in the tub because he's like, haha, you can't do that. Like, I don't give a shit about garlic. It's great. But they're like, oh, but it's holy water. And it gets him. So I'm, I'm a And little... he basically burns until he becomes a skeleton. Yeah. Right? Like he breaking bad acid bathes exactly yes <laughs> yes <laughs> so it works we know it works, so it works for some reason like, max was not affected or but maybe, maybe he covered why... up elegantly maybe that's why he yes slipped. <laughs> he 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 ran out of there like a bat out of hell maybe he had to go to the bathroom oh, after that because he had the holy water him. acid reflux yes. that's what it was okay yes he ran out of there like ah so they had the weird line about Dirty Grandpa having a date. He's got to go. So they, they remove him. Um, they do the montage of the garlic, filling the tub with holy water. Um, and then Diane is going on her second date or second attempt at a date yes, with after, Max, right? After that disastrous date, Diane is trying to get with Max again because girls need to get her some. You know, these boys are creating chaos for her. She's, she just wants some. And then, and then, don't they take? Wait, we forgot that Jamie Gertz and her little vampire kid, which I think was an inspiration for the Gaga Hotel American Horror Story, the little, oh. the little blonde kid, oh. the little adoptee, yeah, right? The, the the actual lost boy, because yes. we see flyers in the beginning of like he's lost, and we realize that he's kind of Kirsten Dunsted, you know, exactly, vampire yes. child, and we're like, oh, he's he's a little heathen right now, but. Yes. But Jamie's like, no, no, he's okay. We need to protect him. So they bring, they come with them to the house. They mm. covered him. He's like covered. This is why he doesn't get affected. You're correct. And then they're trying to protect them. And then at some point it was revealed that he's full on creeper vampire. Yeah. And she's like, but don't kill him. When Corey Feldman is like, well, fuck this. <laughs> this kid is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the Corys have their head in the game in this entire movie. I'm on their side. Max and Diane are at this corporate restaurant. It looks like a high-end Applebee's. I mean, it's just as blah as Max's persona. Uh, there's garnishes everywhere. I don't see any actual prop food. It just seems like a bunch of kale, like a Pizza Hut buffet, just on the, the table. Um, and... They hint at the end of the scene that Diane is going to say, okay, this is a little crazy, but my son thinks you're a vampire. Like they hint that she's going to reveal that they got his number. <laughs> and then meanwhile, Corey and Corey and the other brother, they're prepping for war. They're setting their traps. It, it is a Macaulay moment. Like they are having. Yeah, it's the, it's the pre-Home it's alone. alone. Yeah. But also a little bit of a, a child of, Nightmare on Elm Street when Nancy's setting up all the booby traps in the third act. Yeah, I also. saw. I'm surprised it took you this long to get to Nightmare on Elm Street because I saw <laughs> quite a couple. The vamps come and they burst through the fireplace. And Joel Schumacher has said when the time, the time came to do the special effect, he's like, yeah, he's just going to burst through the fireplace. And Joel <laughs> admitted, he's just like, I don't know anything about this. Make it happen. He had a vision like that. That's just what he wanted. And so <laughs> the special effects department, they didn't tell him they had no fucking idea of what they were doing. They were just like, OK, so you want a lot of suit and you want him to explode out of the fireplace. OK, 
and they got it right like on the first two or three tries but they oh, were wow. they were just kind of winging it too they they thought they knew what they were doing and i i mean i'm sure you can google it to see specifically how they pulled this off but it's a really cool effect like it looks like a pretty much a if a person were a bullet he just shoots out of the fireplace um oh yeah and then i read that the the death of the the rocker vampire guy mm-hmm. who gets plummeted into the radio remember that sequence when he fights oh, with, with, that's with amazing. the arrow yeah that and that 30 seconds, which is only 30 seconds in the movie, took three weeks to shoot. What? It was the hardest thing to shoot in How the movie. So? Yeah. I don't know why, but it was super the complicated. The choreography, probably? And he, yeah. And he really wanted it in a certain way, and it was super complicated, and it took a very long time to get. There's a lot of really great lines surrounding that death, too, because um, after the guy in the fireplace dies via holy water slash garlic bulb, um, then that vampire he shoots an arrow right yeah. it's like an arrow that vampire like gets a... like an arrow to the heart so he's staked through the heart backs up and goes into the stereo system and he's electrocuted and then his exactly. head explodes scanner style yes I mean I can, I can see why it was a hard effect like I yeah I get that now because I forgot about the head just blowing up into a million pieces it's pretty gnarly and, uh, and then Corey has that awesome line afterwards he's like death by stereo <laughs> yes pretty fucking cool and I think there's a band named that um, from that line too okay yeah, here's the nightmare on Elm Street slash it moment the blood spurting up from the sinks go for it G tell me about yes. it yes again the novel came out in the summer of 86 a year before the release of this movie so the scene the very famous passage and it where Beverly sees the the blood coming out of the sink, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Had not been read yet. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it all comes back from Nightmare on Elm Street and the death of Johnny Depp. Oh, who's very right? prominent in our culture at this moment. Exactly, at this moment for various reasons. So when Johnny Depp died in Nightmare on Elm Street, originally I think the idea, it's not, what happens in the movie is not what was originally conceived. It, that was actually a mistake. I think it was supposed to be his dead body was supposed to float out of the thing. Mm. But they were doing this like circular um, set where it was the room goes in a circle and all the blood accidentally spilled out. And they almost died electrocuted from blood and camera work and everything. Oh, wow. So the entire blood going through the thing was a complete accident. They just kept it in the movie because it looked so cool. I think this is definitely referenced in this moment in Lost Boys. It comes directly from Nightmare Especially because mm-hmm. they're they're referencing like Salem's Lot and the earlier window sequences. Um, and, you know, Freddy Krueger became kind of like the symbol of the MTV generation. He had his own TV show. And he had his fun quips. He was, he was sarcastic. And this movie is a different genre. People were not super into horror comedies at this time. After Lost Boys, that's when we started getting a little bit more um, broad with the comedy and horror, like with Buffy, with um, Vampire's Kiss, Nicolas Cage, all those mm-hmm. kind of things. And Robert Rodriguez from Dust Till Dawn eventually, yeah. right, comes from this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting though is that the comedy here is given to the kids and not Kiefer. Mm-hmm. Kiefer is straight on horror. Yeah. So in this movie, they're still keeping the the antagonist as mysterious and 
kind of scary. And then the comedy comes from remember Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. Mm-hmm. True. They have the one-liners and so forth. Not yeah, come to think about it, Jason pa- Patrick too. Jason Patrick takes himself very seriously. So yeah, that's a good point. It's it is all about the, the youth cracking the jokes yeah. and having like their eye on like oh look at look at these assholes. <laughs> look at what's going on with these kids. I, I being really, an adult. I do a... think it is a generational thing. I think they are making a commentary on the generational divide, which I'll get to at the end because like background. But, but the generational divide here is quite close because it's between being a prepubescent teenager and a late and an older teenager. But right? think because about it how we are Patrick. today. Generation X versus like millennials. Generation X gives millennials a lot of shit. And then millennials are like, we're okay, Gen, Gen X. Like, we got you. But boomers, like, okay, boomer. They pick on the boomers. Aren't they the same, technically speaking? They're not. What we're saying is that Corey Haim and Corey Feldman mm-hmm. in this movie, I don't know how old they are, 12, 13, mm-hmm. are technically the same generation as Jason Patrick and Kiefer. The only thing that's different about them is that they're like they've gone through puberty, right? So the vampire older characters are in a edging into adulthood. Still Technically, teenagers. yes, but I, I have this um, this discussion quite often with people discussing the generational divide because I don't feel like it's the year that you were born. I feel like it's like what technology and and uh, societal events shaped you in your formative years. I feel like that's mm-hmm. where you cast yourself. It's not like a horoscope. Well, Carrigan always says it's like having the same cultural references. Yeah, <laughs> right. Totally, Sharing absolutely. Cultural references. So it's like you have so, we have the silent generation that's twenty eight to forty five. We have the baby boomers. They're forty six to sixty four. Generation X sixty five to eighty. Millennials eighty one to ninety five. Z, 96 to 2010, and now Generation Alpha, 2011 to 2025. So by that reasoning, like I, I consider myself a cuspy. I'm between X and millennial. Yeah, we're the X and millennial, yeah. But I, I think of myself as a late X. So I'm 77, you're 80. So yeah, we're almost, I feel like I'm... We're on the edge of millennial. Um, I want to be... I but be our partners early. are millennials, though. But that is true. Right? Jack is definitely a millennial, and so is Jim. <laughs> because we like those younger boys. <laughs> we like those younger lost boys. Um, no, because I do think I, um, Jim and Jack are very technologically apt. And you and I were like, okay, we gotta learn this, but we're not. We're becoming older. There's all this new shit happening, and I think as you get older, you kind of get over it. <laughs> You're like, I, we know shit keeps advancing. Like, for example, my nephew, who is, I guess, alpha, right? Right. He's definitely literally was born into iPads and so iPhones. alpha is 2011. When was he born? 2013. Yeah. So he's definitely in the alpha okay. world. So he. But what's interesting about him is that he mixes engaging with technology and video games with reading. He does a lot of reading. Like, he's a fucking reader. He likes going to the library and getting 10 books. And he reads all of them in, like, three weeks. And so... And that's nothing... I don't... That comes from him because... Are they self-help books? Are they, like, how to deal with COVID? How to deal... (laughs) No, no, being no. at no, home he all likes the time fun, fun shit he, it's goosebumps and oh that's cute scholastic like, book fair represents. YA books um, 
So after we have vampires dying all over the place in this house, like we're setting up the the huge battle royale. And also, as a viewer this time around, I'm like, it's a little too easy to kill these vampires. They seem like so badass and awesome. But again, it could be an allegory for the AIDS pandemic. I mean, like everybody just seems so wonderful and fabulous. And I just want to watch them all the time. And like, oh, they just die. Okay. They're just gone. Yeah, I think so. And I think editing had a lot to do with the the way the climax goes and the way they die is... It seems too fast. Again, you can read the movie from the vampire's perspective. Mm-hmm. In a way, they're the outcasts. They have a lifestyle that is not accepted. But they never they're feel rejected. that they're outcasts. <clears throat> they are defiant. Well, they're loud and proud. And what's the? I mean, there's always this interpretation about horror movies that they're, at the end of the day, they're very conservative because the status quo that gets established at the end is the conservative point of view. Oh, really? Like, like all. Um, yeah, like all, and it's an interesting way of seeing a horror movie. The things that the movie's bringing out as against the norm are mm-hmm. the things that get killed at the end. In this mm-hmm. case, the gay vampires mm. are gone by the end of the movie. And then normalcy is reestablished, which is some sort of heteronormative, conservative world, right? Yeah. I'm not saying that that happens in this movie, but that there's right. been an interpretation. Whereas where the subversive aspects of horror movies come in the in the evil aspects of the movie and then they get killed by the end and everything goes back to normal Mm -hmm. but i argue that the movie is still giving a voice to the dissenting voices through the narrative even though they get squashed by the end because that's the point they're getting squashed and they shouldn't be get squashed this movie kind of plays with that because the vampires are gone too soon and maybe Jason Patrick should have become a fabulous Kiefer Sutherland vampire. Maybe they're the ones. Who I have think it I would right. like Jason Patrick more if he was like Kiefer. Come on. And so it's interesting that the 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 vampire hunters are the kids, right? So the the the, the next the, generation. They the have their next facts. generation. They're, they're like, the, we're not fucking around. We've seen you guys mess everything up. We're we're here to clean house. And so they're trying to save them from AIDS, and they're trying to save them from drug addiction. All these things are happening at mm-hmm. that time, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is at this moment where we, they kill Kiefer, right? He gets pushed into the, is it, what is it like? Is that one of those things? He's that impaled. Hang? Yeah, they have He's that impaled. beautiful John Carpenter red lighting in the barn. Just saying. Yes. And they have this fly fight, which also happens in many vampire movies after this. Because before, we don't really think about these vampires soaring around. We see them as bats or being elegant figures on the ground. We don't see them flying through the skies left and right. And this movie really just, we accepted that reality the minute they introduced that. So one of the references to Dracula is that Diane Weiss' name is Lucy, Lucy, right? And so that's another hint that Mm -hmm. the head honcho vampire is Max. Was Lucy super um, horny or was that the other one? Lucy's a super horny okay, one. Okay, so yes. Diane's well, you know, trying to Diane get Diane is bed. super horny. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> All right. Going on multiple dates with little oh. boring Max. <laughs> <laughs> so they impale Kiefer and we've all assumed that Kiefer is the head honcho because, mm-hmm. you know, he carries himself that way. But, you know, they all had a bad grandpa of their own in Max, who's really the grandfather of all the vampires, right? Yeah. And then he's revealed as the head vampire. And again, the movie doesn't really explain how he got away with not being affected by the typical things that affect vampires, like the holy water and the garlic. But wait, you were going to say something. You had a big I, I just, I just wanted to bring up... Um... 
that Jason Patrick, because he seems like one of those method actors. I mean, everybody's so fantastic, and he's great in this, but he just seems, he seems a little, I don't know. He, he kind of rubs me the wrong way in this movie. Um, and, I, and I did read an interview where he was very anti having prosthetics and makeup. And as we discussed, Kiefer was like, it's fucking painful. Nobody wants to do it. But prior to his contract, Jason was like, this is not a monster movie. This is, I, I like the emotional storyline of this. Don't make me a monster. Don't put me in makeup and hocus pocus shit. Like he did not want that. And then as the movie kept going and kept going and kept going, there was like rewrites towards the ending and they put him, and this is the first reveal of Michael wearing the contact lenses and the prosthetics. This is the first time, like, yeah, he has coked out eyes earlier, but this is the first full vampire reveal. And he was so pissed and so upset and he threatened to walk off set. And Joel Schumacher was he felt so bad. He was like, I am not that director. Again, he's not the director that screams, but he screamed a day or two. <laughs> and then he also said, I'm not the director that, you know, lies to actors. I am an actress director. And as we've seen through his body of work, he is completely an actress director. But Jason Patrick threw a little tantrum and he didn't want to come to set. And they had to call Warner Brothers. And oh, wow. And they made him go to set. And he was not happy about it. And 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 this is, you know, I guess the era of American Werewolf in London, Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. It was like makeup was a thing. It was mm-hmm. like it was when it was growing and it was an art form. So Eva is impaled. True detective is style. Mad before, but after, not after he cries of the horrible makeup, right? Of yes. the intensity of the makeup. Yeah. And then Max gets revealed as the head vampire because after they kill Kiefer, they realize, well, this is not over. What the yeah. fuck is going on? Where's James is like, brother? I still feel like a vampire. Star, chic, star Kira. And the kid is still a vampire, the little blonde boy. So nothing has changed. And this is when it's like, ton, 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 it's me all along. <laughs> the reveal. Right? The dark shadows. Reveal. reveal. And then how do they kill Max? I forgot. <laughs> Yeah, Big Bad Max shows up and he thinks that Kiefer is dead. And like he looks at his face and it's a very angelic, well, beautiful. He touches him, yeah. yeah it's a, my an, son. an older daddy touching a younger daddy face. Exactly. <laughs> and um, so he, he touches Kiefer's face. And I know that Joel Schumacher, um, he wanted a prequel and or a sequel. And we'll talk about that after the movie ends for the sequel. But for the prequel... He was thinking about exploring what happened in the early 1900s before the hotel went into the fault line, and Kiefer was part of that story. And then he thought, well, if they don't, if they're not going to go for a prequel, we're going to have a sequel. So he really didn't want to shoot Kiefer being like solidified as dead. So and that that close up, um, and I believe it's the DP mm-hmm. for for Raging Bull too, or maybe he it was a camera assistant on Raging Bull. I re- I remember looking at the DP's bio and be like, wow, he's he knows his stuff, and he has he does this very loving close up on Kiefer, and as an audience member, you're like, he's dead, he's dead. But on the rewatch, I'm thinking, oh, he kind of looks like a youthful person. Maybe he turned into. Jason Patrick, you know, half vampire stuff, but we know the keeper is definitely killed, so that logic doesn't work. But as we know in Lost Boys, there are new rules being revealed all the yeah, time. Yeah, I was going to say they can change the rules because they, they tweak them a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And then the epic battle between 
son and potential stepdad, Generation Xer against Boomer. And then doesn't back grandpa like plummet his car Well, that's how it house? ended. I I didn't write too much because I think I was engrossed in the action. Because <laughs> I'm like, wow, this, this yeah, is great I didn't fight write choreography. Like, <laughs> we, were we were in, in it, it with them. We were in it. Um, the epic final battle happens. And it's revealed that Max wanted Diane Weist, a.k.a. Lucy, to pretty much be a den mother. He was looking for mommy. Yes. He was looking for his bride. He wanted the bride, but also he wanted her to fill a very conforming gender role. She's, you know, realizing this guy isn't what she thought he was. And I'm sure, like, as a woman, and whenever you date somebody, you're like, oh, fuck, they turned out to be that? Like, wow, your true colors came through. Fuck. So she had that moment. And it sucks. There's, like, a moment of shame. You're like, ugh. Okay, well, that sucks. But she's not one to dwell on things. She has, like, her awesome kids. Mm -hmm. She has, like, all these things going. But lo and behold, and I have a problem with this now, because it is, at the end of the day, a horror comedy. So as a child, I liked it. As an adult, I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. Bad Grandpa crashes through the house. So theoretically, the older guy... the 11th hour. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Little when he did nothing the whole movie exactly exactly craig t's dad guys he did nothing the entire movie um he made like little sly comments and did taxidermy and went off to get laid like that's what he did this fucking movie and he comes in the older generation saves the day barrels through his house that he probably paid 150k for you know, back in the day, and now it's worth $2.3 million. He can sell it for a profit, even with a busted-ass wall. Comes in with his <laughs> gas guzzler, kills Big Bad, and then effortlessly throws away the line. <laughs> One thing about living in Santa Carla that I could never stomach, all the damn vampires. And there's no acknowledgement, <laughs> no reaction shot, fades to black. Which is hilarious, it's great. It's great. It's a great way to end a movie. But then I was fucking pissed. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you couldn't have given them a heads up that they're moving into a bad neighborhood? <laughs> your daughter and your grandkids and you're barely around and you're sharing the space with them and people are missing constantly. And <sighs> it made me mad. You're going to lecture them about gas, but you're not going to tell them that people are missing every day? And they're being eaten by vampires? I... I, And it... It made me mad. And it's interesting because he... When we first met him, he was pretending to be dead in the the porch. You remember that? Oh, that's right. He faked them out. Yeah, he's sick. Yeah, he faked them out. So he's he's kind of like... sick man. And so he's, and he's, isn't he getting like milk from the refrigerator? He's like, oh yeah, this is just another day in paradise, right? And he's oh, like, right. Like I live simply and I'm just going to have my, my saltines and milk. Like I remember there's like a lot of 80s um, preserved food around the refrigerator. I remember <laughs> looking at that being like, oh, okay. Like he's a consumer. But then if you think about it, they're equating this reveal about bad grandpa with the reveal of Max. Right, so they're both revealed as bad 
grand, bad, bad, big bads. Okay, that, in a weird that sort is of way, true. They're correlating the That's two reveals. True. You know, in a weird sort of way, they're saying that this older bad grandpa generation is letting all this happen and doesn't give a fuck. Right. So, so oh, the other guy. So are so we going to be generation that. like Generation X based on what we said? We're passive. We might be bad grandpa. Oh, we might be the big bads. <laughs> now I'm pissed at myself. I don't want to be Maybe. apathetic. I. <laughs> it's not that we're apathetic. I think it's is that we've we've we grew up in a world that's very similar to the world where we are right now. We're like ah. We've seen this before. We have that background attitude. We're jaded, but we're not we're being jaded. proactive. It's the, jade, the jadedness. Hmm. So we just want to live our lives. We don't want to deal with this. Because this was never our fight to fight. Which is not a great so attitude to have because we should be the change we want to see. So I know. And then the millennials are the edgers are the ones who are going to bring the change. We're just going to enjoy it in our 60s. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Are you kidding me? They're going to be At poisoning point, us. They're like, we need some houses, motherfuckers. They're going to put some arsenic in our water. And I'm okay. Like, whatever. I had a good run. I'm fine. Joel Schumacher really wanted in his heart a sequel. And this is before female reboots were a thing. Because, oh. And I'm a hardcore feminist. I did not like the all-female Ghostbusters. I didn't have a problem with it. But I'm also a Harold Ramis purist. And it, it was fine. It was okay. They did their best. Whatever. We didn't need a reboot of that. It's, it's already perfection. But Joel Schumacher wanted a sequel to The Lost Boys called The Lost Girls. I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. But his pitch. Ah. Rosanna Arquette, Drew Barrymore, running around on motorcycles in the oh, 90s. Oh, my God. And I was like, yes, yeah. I'm there. <laughs> That sounds amazing. Right. <gasps> wow. The man had a vision. He really did. Wow. Right. Mind blown. So Mind guys, blown. thanks for listening to us. And I feel I feel like we're so bonded now. I feel like we're all part of like a sexy bike gang. And um, if any of you are in the Santa Clara, not Santa Carla area, come <laughs> September, hit up Dr. G and, and weird him out. Um, anyways, Thanks, guys, and come back in a couple of weeks as our terror of summer. Nope. Come back in a couple of weeks as our summer of terror uh, continues. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.